Welcome to Manage Your Damn Money with Ben and Malcolm, where we trade in personal finance advice for entertaining conversations about money and millennials. Welcome, welcome, welcome world to yet another episode of Malcolm and Ben's favorite show, Manage Your Damn Money with Ben and Malcolm. Malcolm, what's going on? Favorite phrase too. Indeed, indeed. Manage your damn money. I just feel like shouting that out at people sometimes <laughs> when I hear like, when I overhear other people's conversations. Uh -huh. I feel like just like shouting that at them real quick and then walking <laughs> off. They'd be like, oh, I feel so assaulted. And yet, it sounded so catchy. I might have to find out what he's talking about. That's right. what I hope actually happens. I might try it one day. We'll see. Right, indeed. Anything new going on with you, sir? Same old same, man. Just, uh, you know, I, I, I was at, I was downtown D.C. Mm -hmm. um, recently for the, the 4th of July fireworks and the parade that wasn't actually a parade mm. because it got rained out. And that brought a little bit of joy to my heart. <laughs> so I'm still riding high on that. Uh -huh. um, Trump's fireworks, you couldn't even see him from uh, all the smoke and everything in the air from the humidity. And uh. So it was like it literally rained on his parade that nobody else wanted. <laughs> so I'm still riding high on that. Uh, I feel like I had a little bit of a victory. That's that's hilarious. Um, a little bit of news from my side of the table, completely unrelated to that. I realized something thinking, I was somewhere where you do your deepest thinking. I can't remember exactly where. Maybe I was in the restroom or bathroom somewhere in my house. But I realized something, Malcolm. Okay. The promotion and propagation of parenting in America is employed by the elite 1% to keep the masses from socioeconomic ascension. Um, in English, please. Parenting and the propagation and promotion of it <laughs> is a ploy to keep us down because parenting is so expensive. Okay. Anyway. You, you just now feel, are... You, your parents didn't shout that at you every chance they got when you were little? I feel like I was really misinformed about what parenting was about. Like, obviously, it's great seeing your kids grow up, and my wife and I had the experience of having triplets on our first go. So it's a little bit different, but I have nothing else to compare it to. I feel like I've known how expensive parenting was since I was like four. So that means somebody was reminding you of the fact. Every chance they got. <laughs> My parents, I mean, if I like breathe too much air, hey. they were like, you're, you're almost at your quota for today. <laughs> like, dude, chill out. So I don't know how you're just now coming at this uh, realization. Well, a realization of mine. You're gonna find yourself yelling random phrases uh, that mean absolutely nothing. Uh, but it makes perfect sense to you. <laughs> like breathing up all the air. The, those kind of things are coming. Right, or that parenting keeps us from socioeconomic ascension. I'm gonna keep saying that and see if it sticks. Um, I wanna remind people that on this episode, or tell you initially, that we're talking about a very interesting topic, understanding the meaning of risks and investments. Uh, Malcolm, we've been getting into investments uh, a lot lately, and we were actually suggested by our uh, producer, executive producer, uh, Gaynell, that we do understanding the meaning of risk in, inside of investments. Because we've never actually talked about that on the show thus far, at least not that specific. No, I'm excited for the opportunity to nerd out on something as specific <laughs> as risks in investing. Indeed, indeed. But uh, before we get into that, as we do on every show, it is now time for headlines. Why Amazon paid no 2018 U.S. federal tax income income tax? Is anyone surprised? Not I. Uh, April, uh, April 2019 piece on CNBC.com by Andrew Davis read, In 2018, Amazon paid $0 in U.S. federal income tax on more than $11 billion in profits before taxes. It also received a $129 million tax rebate from the federal government. Um, which is a huge windfall amount of money for a company like Amazon. Um, Amazon's low tax bill mainly stemmed from the Republican tax cuts of 2017, carry forward losses from years when the company was not profitable, tax credits for massive investments in R&D, and stock-based employee compensation, Malcolm. So what do you think when people hear that Amazon paid no taxes in 2018? I've got to put my, my own consternation to the side for a second. Uh-huh. And just... As much as it burns me to say this, just give credit where credit is due. <laughs> Jeff Bezos is the man. <laughs> like, I mean, that's really all it comes down to. Mm -hmm. I think, like, like kind of like when people used to watch Michael Jordan play basketball, mm -mm -mm. and you'd wow. be like, he's not, he can't, did he, uh, he, he just, 
And you're like, what wow. just happened? Wow. That is how I feel watching Jeff Bezos. Ladies and play gentlemen, life. ladies and gentlemen, you just heard a Jeff Bezos Michael Jordan comparison here on Manager Damn Money. Continue. They're both bald. They that's, that's, that's probably the only comparison. That, yeah. Okay. They're both greedy. Like, <laughs> you know, you got the two of those. What else do you need? Uh, but so, for example, I'm just thinking about the fact that, like, Jeff Bezos just got divorced mm -hmm. from his wife. Right. And initially, when the reports came out, everybody was like, oh, man, she's probably going to take him for half. She also used to work at Amazon back in its early days and helped him get the company started. Right. Blah, blah, blah. They didn't have a prenup. They lived in a community property state. All that stuff. Right. She didn't end up getting half. But she did. I don't know. I didn't even know. Half of half. Okay. One fourth. So all of that lead up, the preamble, everybody yeah. getting excited, the hoopla, whatever. There really wasn't any real detail that came out from what I noticed mm -hmm. about how and why he finagled that. Right. But I was just like, man. The end result. Like, how? <laughs> Like, but then it's just like it's one of those things where like he did it again. Right. That's what you said watching Michael Jordan play. <laughs> like he had four defenders hanging off of him. He was falling down to the ground and he still made that shot. He did it again. That's how I feel watching Jeff Bezos play life. Oh my god. He did it again. <laughs> so anyway, to answer your question, in short, no, I'm not surprised. That is what this man does. Pa part of me just wants to wrap the show on that, because <laughs> that's just, you know, enough. Uh, well, the story went on to say that Jeff Bezos' company is not the only corporation getting money back from the federal government. Uh, for example, Malcolm, General, Mo Motor General Motors also reported a net federal income tax benefit in 2018. Uh, yeah, also nobody buys cars anymore. <laughs> right. Uh, this also isn't an exactly brand new trend. Companies as diverse as Southwest Airlines and Goldman, Goldman Sachs have also reported similar benefits in certain years since 2008. In a statement to CNBC, an Amazon spokesperson said, Amazon pays all the taxes we are required to pay in the U.S. and every country where we operate, including paying $2.6 billion in corporate tax and reporting, $3.4 billion in tax expenses over the last three years. Uh, the statement also mentioned Amazon's investment in job creation in the United States. Um, all this begs the question, Malcolm, just briefly, does America have a corporate income tax problem? 100%. Okay. I've been saying this since the beginning of me having to pay taxes. That <laughs> if you really wanted to do something meaningful right. with our debt crisis that right. we have in this country, I don't even remember how much it is that the U.S. is in debt now. Right. And that's the that's the federal debt. That right, the debt ceiling like. that they're always talking about raising because what else can we do? Right. So the simple fix mm -hmm. is actually make these corporations pay their fair share in income taxes. You're not gonna take enough away from you and I to make it worth your while. Like, right. I just don't make as much money as Amazon does in a day, right? <laughs> so it's not worth your effort. So tax Amazon mm -hmm. what you should be taxing them, right? and you'll see that debt ceiling come down right. faster and faster, but. Now, now to that point, why do, I mean, there's a trend. We were here, we were here in the DC area where there was you know, a lot of hoopla over when Amazon was searching for a new headquarters or second headquarters. Mm -hmm. um, why do you? Why do U.S. governments and also local governments feel so inclined to offer such generous tax incentives and discounts to the likes of Amazon and other large like companies or even smaller companies that are like moving to a particular city? Because that's the way the system has been structured. Like for them, that tax break that Amazon gave to Virginia, for example. I mean, Virginia gave to Amazon, for example was enough for the governor to look like he accomplished something in his term. Right. That's essentially what it comes down to. So he can go campaign on that. He can go campaign and say, I brought you 25,000 more jobs. I brought Amazon here. I brought you all these wonderful things. Hire me again. Right. Who's going to say no to that? Right. I, I'd vote for the guy. Right. I don't live in Virginia. I would go into Virginia. No, I'm, don't. <laughs> Let me not. Oh, yeah, let me not start any. Uh, yeah. you know. But you know what I'm saying. Like Absolutely. that sounds good enough that people go, oh yeah, he is doing something. Versus, you haven't brought any jobs here. Right. You haven't created any new, you know, tax revenue. You haven't brought. So. So you. So you. So you bring in the corporations to create jobs. You give them major tax benefits. At least mm -hmm. we'll talk even locally. And so it's an interesting scenario where. Yes, you have this new company in your space and in your locale, but they're not necessarily contributing as, as much as they should back into No, the... they're consuming. Okay. So I, the trade-off that people justify it as is if I created 25,000 jobs, mm -hmm. that's 25,000 new people I have to pay payroll taxes on. Right. Some of that goes to the local 
local city government, state government, whatever. Right. There's your add-on. Right. However, if those people were paying federal income taxes, mm -hmm. that doesn't help affect very much to do with like Northern Virginia, for example. Mm -hmm. But if Amazon was paying federal income taxes, that would go a much longer way. Right. Or if Amazon was paying local and city taxes, that would go a much longer way. So it, you know, it's, it's six in one hand and half a dozen in the other because essentially you just want to get elected again. <laughs> so you'll offer whatever incentives you have to to bribe those people to come here. Right. Knowing that that's the only thing that people are going to get excited about and feel good about and say, oh, well, Ben brought 25,000 jobs. Why right. would we not hire him back? Right. And final question before we go to our first music break. Uh, all that results in what? Like we as a normal taxpayer, how does it impact me as an average person living in a place where maybe Amazon or another place where these tax incentives are given to companies? What's the, what's the impact on me personally? Well, if, if Amazon, I'm gonna keep using them as the example because they can afford to take the abuse. Right. So if Amazon was to pay their quote unquote fair share, mm -hmm. then your tax rate wouldn't be going up. It right. probably would be coming down. Right. So the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that got passed, it reduced income taxes on people, you know, in like the 28% bracket and brought you down to 24, I think it was, which sounds great if you're one of the few hundred thousand people that's in between that, that sandwich, right? right? But it also simultaneously brought the corporate income tax rate down from 35. Uh, that's the thing that really mattered. 35 right. to 22 is a huge uh, jump on a company that makes a million gazillion fulfillion dollars a year like Amazon does. Uh, Where's the real trade-off, right? right? Like you save me five grand so that you could save Amazon a fulfillion dollars. Right. So <laughs> there's your your difference. Like if they were paying their fair share, uh -huh. I would need you. You wouldn't have to increase my taxes any. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, uh, I want to remind people you can always catch past episodes of Manage Your Damn Money. I feel like I just turned into Bernie Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> right here on TV and on our show. Let's go to break. I need to. I, I need to regroup. <laughs> We can uh, regroup as we take this quick music break, but I want to remind you, you can always catch past episodes of our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and other places where you listen to podcasts. Simply search Manage Your Damn Money. And of course, please leave us a review. Give us a five-star rating on any of those platforms. That helps more people catch the show. If you have a question or subject you want us to cover, send it to us, info at manageyourdamnmoney.com. And of course, you can always catch us on social media. My handle on Twitter and Instagram is at mydm1. Malcolm, what's yours? Uh, at Bernie, for, oh, sorry, at Malcolm on Money. Indeed, indeed. And of course, you can always catch us on Facebook, facebook.com backslash Money. This is MYDM with Ben and Malcolm. We will be right back. Thanks for listening to Manage Your Damn Money with Ben and Malcolm. Are you interested in more entertaining fare covering money and millennials? Treat yourself to a copy of my book, Fictitious Financial Fairy Tale, a completely untrue story about money, friends, and Moscow mules. Available now on Big Brother. I mean, Amazon. It's packed with laughs and will look great on your living room coffee table. Enjoy the rest of the show. Welcome back to Manage Your Damn Money with Ben and Malcolm. We're on this episode as I turn the page to figure out what we are talking about. <laughs> Understanding the meaning of risk and investments. In previous episodes of MYDM, we've explored what it means to invest. From stocks to specifics of an initial public offering, we've tackled the topic a number of times. But never before have we looked at the very specific component. Key to understanding your own efforts in investing, we're talking about risk. On this show, Malcolm and I will take a look at what risk actually means in the context of investing 
and will help you understand what the word should mean for you, Malcolm. So the first thing people should understand, you know, we're talking about risk or as a concept risk. Sure. Uh, first, you have to understand it. Uh, what is risk is the question. Risk takes on many forms, but is broadly categorized as a chance an outcome or an investment's actual return will differ from the expected outcome or return. Risk includes the possibility of losing some or all of your original investment. Um, different versions of risk are usually measured by calculating the standard deviation of the historical return or average returns of a specific investment. I literally just said gibberish to myself. Um, a high standard deviation indicates a high degree of risk. A key component of risk management process is risk assessment, which involves the determination of risk surrounding a business or, a business or investment. Uh, the fundamental idea in finance is the relationship between risk and return. The greater the amount of risk an investor is willing to take, the greater potential return outcome. So why don't you just boil down all the jargon I just used? Yeah, because this is usually the part of the conversation in a new client meeting uh -huh. where I can see their face just completely like Blake, change. Right. And, uh -huh. it just, and so I do my best now to avoid getting too much into the weeds on all of what you just said. Yeah, standard deviation. Like when I was looking stuff. through the outline for the show and I was like, standard deviation, volatility, I was like, man, we're going to get into it. <laughs> so I, I, I put that in there just for educational purposes. A general marker is if I'm getting excited about it, that means we've gone too far. We're going in the wrong direction. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, so I mean, essentially, the way to think about it is just, you know, the amount of risk that you're taking on, the, the end needs to justify the means, right. is the simple way to look at it. So you're examining your single investment or your overall portfolio to make sure that the thing that you're chasing, the return, is actually justified by the amount of exposure you have right. to the market. So the amount of risk is the amount of exposure you have to a downturn in the market, essentially. Okay. Excellent. Do you remember your first learnings of risk, specifically in investing? Like what? You remember that first thing that you learned about mm. what it meant to be? So the first stock I ever owned was Nike. Mm -hmm. And I do remember, so this is shows you how old I am. I remember actually having to track the price of the stock in the business section of the Washington Stop. Post. So on the Shut way up. to school, like, so my, my family actually got the Washington Post delivered to of the house. Of course they did. So on the way to school, I would actually read the business section in the morning <laughs> just to track how my shares of Nike were doing. How old were you? 12, 13. I would be like, my kid is weird. He's in the backseat. No, my mom encouraged it. Like, she, sure she like it was the best thing ever because we would actually have conversations about her stocks that she owned and uh -huh. I would like look them up and like let her know how they were doing. Because you used to have to look in the newspaper for so those. So I was the ticker young. tape. Like, you know how you watch CNBC and the ticker tape goes across and tells you what everything is trading for that day? I right. was the live ticker tape for my That's, mom's portfolio. I, the picture of that, of you in the backseat of the car with your newspaper out. Did you have a cup of coffee as well? I wish. <laughs> No, probably hot chocolate. I didn't I didn't start drinking coffee till college. Indeed. Anyway, Indeed. so that was probably my first like launching into it mm -hmm. because I was watching like the price of the stock go down, down, right. down each day that I was looking at it. Right. To the point that I started getting a little heartburn. Like this isn't right. This isn't what I'm investing for. <laughs> but it's a hard lesson to learn. But right. that's essentially, you know, what you need to know is that stocks don't go up in a straight line. Right. Similarly, my uh, first experience with risk was having bought Apple because mm -hmm. that was my first stock. I was a little bit older, maybe I think in the 17 ish range. Um, but by then, the Internet was a prevalent thing. So I was tracking it online. Uh, but it, I, I remember watching the stock for Apple at the time, and I think I bought it maybe around the $200 mark, mm -hmm. and just watching the ebbs and flows of the stock price, that was kind of my first introduction to it. When you bet it all on black, you are watching like, cause you know, if you only own one stock, right. then what else are you watching? <laughs> so it is like, yeah. Indeed, indeed. Uh, so broadly speaking, uh, you, you kind of talk about it when you talk to clients or new clients. What is the core thing that people need to understand about the concept of risk? Um, essentially, every it's, it's that whole physics uh, terminology about every action having an equal and opposite reaction, mm. which is partly true right. in the world of investing because every loss takes longer to recover right. from that loss mm -hmm. than it does if you didn't suffer the loss in the first place. So uh. for example, like 2008 is a great example where the, the S&P 500 index was down like 38% or something like that overall. Mm -hmm. A person who only lost half of that, for example, so what is that, 19%? Mm -hmm. A person who only lost half of that took 
half the amount of time to get back even right. as the person who lost the whole 38. Right. So what that means is now I'm back even and going forward, everything I make is to the positive. Mm. You're still running the race just to catch back up. Right. So it's important that people understand that it, it for every incremental fractional amount of additional return that you're chasing, mm. you're also allowing for that much more risk in the portfolio right. to the downside. Right. So just making sure that you understand the trade-off that you're making to get that. Um, and then also making sure that you understand that, you know, things like how much time you have right. is gonna make the difference in how much risk you should be taking on. Definitely, definitely. Um, and a story we pulled for this show, three risks of investing in the stock market, um, volatility, timing, and overconfidence. This was a piece on moneycrashers.com by Michael Lewis. Um, the first concept that they bring up is the concept of volatility, sometimes called market risk or involuntary risk. Volatility refers to the fluctuations in price of a security or portfolio, portfolio over a year period. All securities are subject to market risk that include events beyond the investor's control. These events affect the overall, mar overall market, not just a single company or industry. Um, and that includes Malcolm, geopolitical events, economic events, and inflation, which are all types of market volatility. Everyone remembers the Great Recession of 2008. Mm -hmm. That would be called an economic event. And if there was something that affected like uh, the supply of oil, for instance, and people need gas, that would right. be like a geopolitical issue. Um, then another issue they bring up, timing. Market pundits claim that the keys to stock market riches is obvious, buy low and sell high, good advice perhaps, but tough to implement since prices are constantly changing. Anyone who has been investing for a time has experienced the frustration of buying at the highest price of the day, week or year, or conversely selling a stock at its actual lowest value and coming to realize it was the lowest value later. Um, trying to predict future prices or quote unquote timing the market is difficult, if not impossible, especially in the short term. In other words, it is unlikely that an, any investor can outperform the market over any significant period. And that's probably just a basic tenet of like financial planning and wealth management. Yeah, there almost is no such thing as timing the market long term. Right. Like on a day to day basis, anybody can get lucky, right? A broken clock is right twice a day, as the old folks say. Mm -hmm. So anybody can get, get it right once or twice. Right. However, if we're talking about investing, like for example, in a retirement account, mm -hmm. one of the things that like, makes my hair stand up is when somebody is talking about like trading their retirement account uh, to keep up with the flows of the market. Right. You're never going to catch all of the right highs and lows. Right. Like you just, you're not. Right. It's just, it doesn't happen that way. Right. So it's important that the term, the phrase that folks use in my industry that actually I think is a little bit, you know, hokey, but it's applicable here is that it's not about timing the market so much as it's about time in the market. Mm. So the earlier you start and the longer you have, mm. the better off you'll do. Right. Not so much catching the up day and the down day and right. you know, that sort of thing, because you just won't. Right, absolutely. Um, and then the last item they uh, mentioned, which you kind of alluded to in talking about trading a retirement account, Malcolm, the concept of overconfidence. Many successful yes. people reject the possibility of luck or randomness having any effect on the outcome of an event whether a career, an athletic contest, or an investment. E.B. White, author of Charlotte's Web and a longtime columnist for The New Yorker once wrote, luck is not something you can mention in the presence of a self-made man. Malcolm, for some reason, I'm thinking about you. What? I don't know. <laughs> the harder I work, the luckier I get. That's my, that's my attitude toward luck. You just, um, you, you just highlighted anyway, what I meant. Move so, but, so here's the thing though, uh -huh. that, that whole thing about overconfidence, it's funny because it's a, like, it's a behavioral economics focus right. for us as planners because something that you have to learn as a financial planner is that all of the gains are because the client made the right moves right all of the losses are because you as the advisor made all the wrong moves it's your fault and you just have to get used to it okay like that just is what it is so when things are going Do great people take credit for the moves oh my god really yes wow that's pretty yes. hilarious they pay you and then say they did it yep well, not directly like, you know, the reason I'm up 10% is because I told you to do X, Y, Z, but it's like, everything is fine when the market is up. Everybody's everybody's best friend. Uh -huh. The market is down. That's all of a sudden when folks want to call in and start coaching from, you know, the <laughs> sidelines. Um, and it's like, you know, where were you when we were up 10? And right. that was also me, right? right? So. <laughs> that's part of it right okay so how do you characterize overconfidence how would a person know if they were feeling overconfident with their market moves that they were making either individually or alongside of their uh, wealth management advisor 
I, I don't know that there's a way to like tap yourself on the shoulder and say like, look, dude, you're doing too much. Excuse me, sir. Like, you know, it's just a, a thing where you have to, uh, like kind of just how I laid it out for you, it's almost literally impossible to time the market perfectly. I have to right. say almost, cause you know, there may be that one person out there that's gonna email and say, well, my uncle back in 1946, right. blah, blah, blah. Calculated. But right. you know, that's the whole reason that, um, that Warren Buffett has that challenge every year about the bracket where he'll pay you a million dollars if you fill out the NCAA bracket perfectly just because like the probab the statistical probability of it is so close to zero. Right. Same thing here mm. where it's like you just can't. Right. So the way that you uh, overcome overconfidence mm -hmm. bias is to just understand that it's more about your longer term result right. than it is something you did today or next week or the week after right. trying to follow along with the news around like the China trade war right, or right. now it's the China US India trade war I learned today <laughs> like there's just so many moving pieces you just uh -huh. aren't going to get it right every time right it would be impossible to do so um, so some key ways Malcolm and feel free to interject at any point to uh, manage the risk in a portfolio of investments and of course by portfolio we mean a grouping of investments uh, first of all, diversification. You can't have all of your eggs in one basket. Um, so what does that mean? So with diversification, the most important thing to keep in mind is that there's a there's a certain level that you hit and then that's it. Like there's a certain diminishing return after that point. So on diversification? I mean, on diversification. Okay. So there's a such thing as being over diversified ah. is essentially what I'm trying to say. So you'll have some people that'll say like, oh, well, if I own a hundred stocks, mm -hmm. then I'm completely diversified. And that means that if the market has a downturn, then I'm spread out so much so that I won't catch all of the, the downfall. Right. But realistically, like there's a point at which you, you begin washing out. Too far, you right? begin washing out your gains. Because now losses. your incremental gains don't mean anything because you've spread yourself so thin. Right. So so what? You don't actually lose, you know, anything in your positions. You don't gain anything either. So right. it's not worth the effort. It's just a stalemate. So there's a point, and that's where the whole standard deviation part of the conversation comes in, mm -hmm. where you've got to actually look at whether you just improved anything by adding one additional investment to the mix. Mm -hmm. And was that investment different enough from the ones that you already own right. that it actually is diversification? Because right. if I say I'm going to diversify out and I'm going to buy Apple, Amazon, and Google, mm -hmm. well, those are three tech stocks, essentially. Right. So I didn't really diversify anything necessarily because mm -hmm. I'm still fully invested in tech. Right. So those are the kind of things you have to actually keep in mind when it comes to the diversification conversation. Right, and so that's, and then there's also the concept of diversity in the investment type and asset class. Mm -hmm. Obviously you have stocks and you have like ETFs, bonds, and all kinds of other different products that you can buy typically under a stock brokerage account. Um, so, and so that's a different kind of diversity. Uh, and then also the concept of dollar cost averaging. Malcolm, can you quickly give us something on what that means, dollar cost averaging? Yeah, so dollar cost averaging basically means you're contributing into an account at some interval frequently. So for example, right. I'm taking $100 out of my checking account, direct depositing it into my brokerage account every month. Mm -hmm. And that same day, say the first of the month, I'm buying $100 worth of the S&P 500 index. Right. So I'm gonna get some of the really high days depending on where the index is. Right. I'm gonna get some of the really low days depending on where the index is. Right. But over time, it's gonna even itself out or right. it's gonna average itself out as the word. Um, and so I'll get close to right. being in the middle of the road right. versus running the risk of putting it all in on one day, getting the absolute high day right. and then the market plummets. Right. Um, hoping that today's the day I'm buying the absolute bottom right. and then it's all up from here, which again, just almost never happens. Right, absolutely. And another way to actually uh, kind of mitigate or, or manage risk, I should say, uh, you can also do index fund investing, which takes the guessing game out of it. What's right. an index fund? Mon uh, I was going to call you Monica. Wow. <laughs> Malcolm. Malcolm, my co-host, not my wife. Um, yeah. So. Anyway, I think... Um, Sorry to throw you off there, sir. You completely threw me off. I mean, I, I, the good thing is that's a compliment to both of us. So <laughs> I'll, I'll take that in stride. So anyway, essentially, the... the Jeez, you really threw Get me off. Get back on track. I'm, I'm sorry. I use that name every day on multiple times a day. I'm right. sorry. You really threw me off with that one. All right. So ETFs uh -huh. essentially spread out your risk. Uh -huh. So I just use the S&P 500 index as my example, right? Right. So that means I own 500, the, the 500 largest 
publicly traded companies that are US based. Right. So I now have spread out my risk that if one company just completely plummets and falls off the face of the earth, mm -hmm. that's only one five hundredth of right. my portfolio. Right. Whereas if I was to buy the largest stock in the S&P 500, which right. I think is Apple still, mm -hmm. then I've only got one company. And if Apple, for whatever reason, falls off the face of the earth, there goes my whole portfolio or my investment. Absolutely. So the ETF, Exchange Traded Fund, allows me to own a basket of companies right. all in one instrument right. without having to go buy all 500 of those companies separately. Absolutely, absolutely. And my final question before we go to break, I personally have experienced luck mm -hmm. in investing in one particular stock. Mm -hmm. I remember I put 10 grand in Under Armour. This was years ago. And after three months, cashed out and made 4,000 on top of my- I know you're glad you sold it. Uh, yeah, absolutely, 100%. This is, but this was a while ago. Yeah. Um, so that kind of can be like an emboldening feeling, like it emboldens you to do that again. How do people resist the urge of trying to go big or go home? in the way that I was able to do one time and have since, and again, failed, at least thus far, in another investment? Like, how do people resist that urge? You just answered it. it it's that equal opposite effect. So, <laughs> you know, the, the whole thing about, like, that equal opposite force felt a whole heck of a lot worse, too. Mm -hmm. I can't even remember right now, for some reason, I'm stuck, I'm blanking on it, but it's another economics term for how people perceive losses twice as bad as they perceive gains. Uh, so I am okay with gaining $4,000 on my $10,000 investment. Right. But if I lost $4,000, it feels like I lost eight. And so sense. now I don't ever want to invest again uh, because I just lost so much money. I lost 80% right. of my investment is the way I perceive it. Right. Versus if I made four, it's like, well, I expected to make four. So that's whatever. what I was supposed like, to do. Yeah, like, because uh, I'm a genius. Like, right. So what? Clearly. So that's the, the, the trade-off is when you do get that loss that comes along, because inevitably there will be some losses. Right. That thing throws you off so badly that you just never bother to try again in some cases. Indeed, indeed. So some good uh, primer on uh, risk there. Uh, we're going to take another quick music break. But before we go, I want to remind you, you can catch past episodes of the show as a podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and other platforms where you may, might listen to podcasts. Um, please leave us a review on any of those platforms. It helps more people catch our show. If you have a question or a subject you want us to cover, send it to us, info at managerdamnmoney.com. And of course, if you want to follow us on social media, you can do so. My handle is at MYDM1. Malcolm, what's yours? At Malcolm on Money. And that's on Instagram and Twitter. And you can catch us on Facebook, facebook.com backslash manage your damn money. And also, we also want to remind people, we just started a Facebook group. Oh, yeah. 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 So join that. I think the URL is facebook.com backslash groups backslash manage your damn money. Uh, we, this is MYDM with Ben and Malcolm. We will be right back. Welcome back to Manage Your Damn Money with Ben and Malcolm, where we are discussing understanding the meaning of risk and in investments. And I mentioned it on the other side of the uh, break, Malcolm. We do have a Facebook group that is available to anybody just request to be entered. We figured we have these conversations and we should open it up to our people who listen and watch the show on TV or as a podcast. It's um, a good place to get feedback. Absolutely, and then we can engage more directly with folks um, in the way that people do on Facebook. Um, but back to this topic. I have to remember my Facebook password now. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? Um, <laughs> we're covering, as I mentioned, uh, the meaning of risk and in investments. Uh, Malcolm, so a bit about defining one's risk tolerance. Why don't you tell us about that? 
Um, yeah, so essentially figuring out your risk tolerance. I should start by saying everybody's risk tolerance will be different. Right. Um, so everybody's got a different uh, appetite. Everybody's got a different attitude toward taking on risk. And that's not even just financial. That's just in general. Right. right. Like some people drive fast. Some people drive slow. Right. Some people drive in those two lanes in the middle that get in my way. Right. So that's the way you should think about investing, too, is that, you know, for the folks that are like, I can drive 99 miles an hour everywhere I go because I can handle the car and I can keep it on the road and I can handle it. Well, you also are at a lot more risk of having an accident than the person who drives 60 because they have some sense right. and, you know, hangs out in those middle two lanes. Right. With that said, if you're the person who's in the far right lane who drives 20 miles an hour under the speed limit, almost causes accidents <laughs> and barely gets where you're going, right. then you have the opposite problem where it's like, you know, you could have used a little more speed. Right. That is essentially the, the shift between the different folks' appetites for risk, right? right? Like some of us want the huge outsized gains and some of us don't want any risk at all and I just right. want to know exactly what I'm going to get. And then there's the people wedged in the middle that right. are like, I can take a little bit, but right. I don't want to do too much. And specifically, risk tolerance is the degree of variability in investments, returns that an investor is willing to withstand. Risk tolerance is an important component in investing. Uh, you should have a realistic understanding of your ability and willingness to stomach large swings in the value of your investment. If you take on too much risk, you might panic, and as Ma Malcolm alluded to earlier, sell at the wrong time. Um, an often seen cliche is that what we will refer to as age-based risk tolerance. Um, it's a conventional wisdom that a younger investor has a longer term horizon in terms of need for investments and can take more risk. Um, following this logic, an older person has a shorter time to be in the market, as I think you alluded to earlier, Malcolm, especially once the individual is retired and would have a lower risk tolerance because they can't su suffer any major losses to their account balance or to the presumably, value. Presumably, right. But there's also the fact that that person could have more in uh, assets sure. than they're ever gonna need in this lifetime and the next, right? right? And that, that the definition was actually provided to us by Investopedia, but go ahead. So there's, there's the whole conventional wisdom, which you know I'm generally opposed to. <laughs> and then there's the like realistic wisdom, right. which is like your risk tolerance depends on a whole bunch of things. Mm -hmm. But one of them is how much do you have already, right? Right. Because you have folks that I'll meet that have like you know, way more money than they'll need three times over. Right. And then when you look at their investment portfolio, it's all in stocks, uh, and they're like 75 years old. Right. And like, what are you doing? Yeah, you got to pull out. You won already. Back. Right. You done. Like, you already won the game. Right. Get Why out. Why are you still driving 90 miles an hour? <laughs> like you won. Get out. So there's right. that aspect of it too. Like. Uh -huh that person's specific life situation has to come into play as well. It, question for you, because risk tolerance feels to me a lot like when we talk about a credit score. Mm -hmm. Is this something you can kind of calculate more concretely or like? It would, my, my, my job would be so much easier if it was something you could concretely put your thumb on. Okay. It really is just a function of having a dialogue with a person long enough and knowing what questions specifically to ask right. that get you in a general direction to understand where that person's comfort level is. Mm -hmm. But then there's even the aspect of it where you've got to kind of coach somebody into their risk tolerance. Right? Uh -huh. Like if you sat down with me, I'm 31, mm -hmm. I could say, I don't want to lose any money. Right. And you say, okay, well, if you don't want to lose any money, I'll put you in this nice CD or right. this, Here's know, these bonds. this bond or whatever. Right. It's guaranteed to pay you 3% a year. and. Right you'll ride off into the sunset 30 years from now when it matures. Right. And that might sound great to me. I'm like, okay, that sounds slow and steady and great right. and you know, whatever. But then there's also the opposite side where I've now, the risk that I've missed out on all of right. the gains that I could have made right. over that 30 years. Right. Then there's also the risk that I don't keep up with infl inflation. Right. But if inflation is higher than the two or 3% that I made in that CD over that 30 year period. Right. So there's all those other things that come into play that some of it is just educating people to make sure that they understand. Like if that is where your comfort zone is, mm -hmm. just understand all the other things that you're gonna give up in exchange for it. Right. And you can come to an idea of your own risk tolerance, can't you, even without the help of a financial advisor, correct? Yes and no. Okay. I mean, if you've never actually like suffered losses before, ah, that is then true. you may not have any idea what your <laughs> risk tolerance actually is, right? Sure. Like if you're telling me you had a $10,000 investment, you lost $4,000, 40% 40, 40 of your investment, mm -hmm. and you and I still have conversations about stocks 
on a regular basis, you know, however many years removed you are from it, right. you got a pretty healthy risk tolerance, uh, a pretty healthy risk appetite. Right. But if you were telling me you took that 6,000 that was left, mm -hmm. it's been in cash ever since, and it's been <laughs> 10 years and you never thought about it again, right. uh, maybe not. <laughs> right. So right. it just, it really depends. Absolutely. Um, another little piece that we pulled for this show, uh, nine types of investment risk. These what we could qualify as other risk, and this was uh, something we pulled from the Ontario Securities Commission um, on their Get Smart About Money website. Um, the first thing that they mentioned is interest rate risk. This would basically be the risk of losing money due to changes in the prime interest rate. Um, so how does that how does that work, Malcolm? What does that mean exactly? So essentially, the prime interest rate is a variable rate that's set by banks to determine how much they charge you in interest when they construct a loan right so for example I just got a, a, a mortgage on a house right our mortgage rate is locked in uh, believe it or not I don't even remember exactly what it is mm. let's say it's 4% even okay and tomorrow interest rates go down mm -hmm. the interest rate risk in there is uh, that I locked in a rate higher than what I could have gotten tomorrow right but on the flip side right. if I locked in at four and tomorrow it's at four and a quarter I feel like a genius right so Absolutely. there's your the, the short version right also uh, currency risk is another kind of risk that's basically just the changing currency values across all the different kinds of currencies that exist in the world um, then there's liquidity risk this is an important one it's the risk of being unable to sell your investment at a fair price and to get your money out when you want to um, to sell the investment you may need to accept a lower price or you may not be able to sell as quickly as you like and especially if you have like an online brokerage account um, sometimes, what, isn't there like a holding period where you can't sell back the stock immediately after you purchased it? Some of them I've seen actually construct that on like ETFs okay. and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, th that's not universal. Right. I think that's firm by firm and I'm right. glad you brought that up because that's something you may want to check for when you're setting up your brokerage right. account to determine who to do it with. Because you could buy a stock on day one and want to sell on day two, but you might not be able to. Because you technically don't own it yet. So it takes two days for that stock to, to clear, quote, unquote, settle. Right. So you don't even own it completely yet if right. you bought it today, Monday, and sold it today, Monday, right. versus waiting till Wednesday to sell it. Right. So those kind of things, you're right, can get you in a little bit of trouble. Mm -hmm. um, but the reason the liquidity risk matters more is because there's certain types of uh, instruments like private equity funds or real estate investment trusts or what's referred to as private placements, direct investments, things like that, that typically have like a 12 month or more lockup period right. where you've got to be pretty good and certain that you aren't going to need to get these funds for the next 12 months right. because they'll charge you a hefty penalty to get to access get out. to your money. Right. Uh, absolutely. Um, also, credit risk, the risk that the government entity or company that issued the bond that you bought, so we talked about that 3% return on that real estate bond, uh, will run into financial difficulties and won't be able to pay the interest or repay the principal at the maturity date, and that's possible. Um, there are, you know, it could be governments or other entities that issue bonds that are supposed to be guaranteed, but if those entities don't survive the length of time, they might not be able to pay that, uh, what it promised you back. Think about Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. They got wiped out by a hurricane. Their government is still scrambling to get itself back together and right. 45 hasn't sent a, a, a red cent <laughs> down there for, for aid. So if you own bonds backed by the municipality of Puerto Rico, right. that might be an issue. It's a pretty good chance. Right, right, right. Also, uh, reinvestment risk. The risk of loss from reinvesting the principal or income at a lower interest rate. And then also longevity risk. The risk of outliving your savings. The risk is particularly relevant for people who are retired or nearing retirement. Obviously, as you get older, the need for your money and to give your, be able to pay yourself an income in the last half of your life when you're not necessarily making an income or at what you made when you're a working person. Um, you know, you can't have your money outlive you. But that's that goes to the point that I was making about uh, inflation. Uh -huh. Like inflation is public enemy number one when it comes to retirement. Mm -hmm. And so understanding that you sometimes, mm -hmm. the, there are people who can do it, but sometimes you can't just throw it all in a bond or a bond fund or a, a you know, a, a basket of right. municipal bonds or whatever people conventional wisdom will tell you to do because if you don't keep up with inflation right. then you run the risk of outliving your money which right. I'll give you the word of the day since I saw you reading your word of the day calendar earlier that term is superannuation ah. that is what happens when you outlive the assets that you have accumulated superannuation superannuation ladies and gentlemen that is Malcolm Etheridge <laughs> He's here every week on Manager Damn Money. Um, a question for you though, Malcolm. 
looking at two different profiles. So looking at a wealthy person, like mm -hmm. one of your clients, mm -hmm. um, and a normal working American like myself, what would you say is the most important risk factor for each of those profiles to consider? Um, well, I mean, I think we just, we, we kind of just touched on it. You have the folks who, they won the, the, they won the game already, right. right? They have more than any simulator I'm gonna run them through says they're ever gonna get a chance to spend in this lifetime and the next. Ah. And they still will wanna let it roll. Right. Because we're 10 years now into this bull market that we've been in that feels great. Right. Everybody looks like a genius. Mm -hmm. The term we use is that a high tide raises all boats. So right. even if you were like middle of the pack, you've still had a positive you know, last 10 years. Right. But the music has to stop at some point. Right. And folks just, when you have been going that strong, especially for folks who are already pretty well off, we're right. talking millions of dollars which means the returns are hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Right. That feels good, it looks good, it, you know. It's a little ego stroke. Your genius starts to show, right? right? That overconfidence. Right. So the real risk for that person is getting overconfident and right. not taking more risk off of the table mm -hmm. along the way and suffering unnecessary losses. Right. On the flip side, you have people who, um, they have less, so they worry more, right. so they take less risk, right. when in some cases that is the person who needs to be taking more risk. Right. And so you'll have a person who maybe is like 30 or 40, they say, I have $100,000 and I don't wanna lose a dime of it, so right. I'm only gonna be invested in you know, like a stable asset fund or something. They, they won't make any money on it to Right, so you're clinging for dear life to what you do have, right. even though you need to multiply it you know, a few At times the over, over the next have. 30 years or whatever. Right, so the risk that you miss out on the party mm -hmm. is huge right. for a person who really is going to need those kind of uh, returns to supplement what they wouldn't have a chance to uh, save Absolutely. In, their, in their working life. Absolutely, and before we close the show, a couple more pointers on how to minimize or to mitigate risk. Um, volatility in financial markets can affect your confidence, but it's important to remember the principles of good risk management when it comes to investing. Malcolm, and please step in anytime you want to. We already talked about diversification. Mm -hmm. um, specifically, that means having a diversified portfolio, meaning you'll be less exposed to a particular economic event. You can diversify across asset classes, industry sectors, and also geographic regions, which we kind of covered already. Um, and then also, this is a big one, Malcolm, uh, focus on your investment goals. Usually when you buy growth investment assets, you expect some short-term volatility. So it's important not to panic when markets drop and consider whether the assets you hold are still appropriate to achieve your long-term goal. And that one goes to that whole time horizon conversation that we were having, like the, the length of time you have to support your right. investment right. plan. Mm -hmm. Focusing on that and not so much the short-term effects right. is gonna matter a huge amount in comparison. Right, right. And uh, Mal Mal was aware of one particular stock that I hold personally that uh, I'm down and underwater on, but I have a little time to wait. So I'm gonna just keep waiting and see what happens, which also means I have a higher risk tolerance. Uh, clearly. Yeah, clearly. I'm, st I'm, still, I'm still tolerating it, boy. Uh, and then uh, monitoring your investments as assets gain or lose value. The balance of your assets may change and reduce the diversity of your balance of your portfolio. If the percentage of any asset st stays, strays too far away from its targeting weighting, you may need to rebalance your portfolio. And a lot of like retirement accounts slash, you know, 529 college savings uh, accounts and things like that, they give you the option to pick a date mm -hmm. and then allocate your investments based on, or have it automatically allocated based on that date mm -hmm. or that goal and you can adjust it based on how aggressive you want to be um, or based on what that date is. So as the date comes, you kind of pull back into some more safe investments. Did I explain that properly? Mm -hmm. So a target date fund, basically, like you said, mm -hmm. as you get closer to landing the plane, right. it gets safer and safer because you're more likely to need that money sooner and sooner. Right. And so you want to take on, actually, I don't know that we even talked about that necessarily, but the your willingness to take on risk has has more to do with when you're going to actually need those funds right um, and how much of those funds you're going to need when you do right so that whole thing about liquidity matters more and more and for a, something like key, 529 for example a key example of that we just opened a 529 investment congratulations account. yeah i did that actually i marked that off my adult list all the girls have 529 savings plans. For, All the girls going to college. I, I hope so, I guess, maybe, or maybe not, I don't know. They got uh, to nominate one. <laughs> <laughs> nominate one as tribute. Uh, but uh, their 
allocation of the portfolio is like for 2036 or something mm -hmm. and it's like 100% stock. Yeah, so the first 12, 14 years of their life is mm -hmm. probably gonna be completely in stocks. Right. And then as you get about three or four years out from going to college and actually needing to pull the money out, right. you get closer to like a 50-50. Ah. But the reason you can't completely take it out of the market altogether from the day the, you know, I'm gonna use one kid. So the day your daughter goes to, to college, mm -hmm. The reason you can't just go completely to cash is because it's got to go three more years, presumably. It's right? got to so last. You got to actually take the time to, to figure out where's that balance mm. between beating inflation, right. having a little bit of extra return, and then, okay, now we're just being greedy. Right, right. And then, of course, I mean, this is not necessarily uh, something you do if you're a normal, if you're a normal person, uh, but if you can, consider financial advice. And then also, and I feel like this is particularly appropriate for like athletes and high, or those who are high earners early on, beware of scams. Um, we've done shows in the past about athletes like Clinton Fortis, who got got, Lord, who got Lord, got. Lord. That's a that's an oldie but goodie. So there's so many scams. <laughs> So are scams some things that people come to you with as with, you know, their clients of yours? You know what? Not, not clients. Okay. Fortunately, I don't have clients come to me with those kind of things. But believe it or not, peers come to me with, with nonsense like that. Like, you know, that whole I just need five minutes of your time. Wake up now kind of stuff. That's, that's really what like turned me off, I think, from Facebook altogether was just the people that were going to help me make 400 $400 a minute or $400 a day uh -huh. and I don't have to get off the couch or whatever. Uh -huh. And I'm like, if you really have it on lock like that, right. why are you sharing it with me? Why are you calling me yeah, up? Yeah, like if, if it really was as easy as you make it sound, you wouldn't be interested in sharing that with me. You'd right. be hoarding that for yourself like Jeff Bezos. See how that came full circle? And on that full circle of our conversation today on Manage Your Damn Money, we're going to close the show. Uh, I'd like to remind you, you can always catch past episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and also Spotify or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Simply search Manage Your Damn Money. And of course, please leave us a review. Give us a five-star rating on any of those platforms. Uh, that helps more people catch our show. If you have a question or want us to cover a particular topic, send us your suggestion, info at manageyourdamnmoney.com. You can always catch us on social media. My handle is at mybm one Malcolm, what's yours? At Malcolm on Money. Of course, that's on Twitter and Instagram. You can always catch us on Facebook, facebook.com backslash manageyourdamnmoney. And catch us in our Facebook group, facebook.com backslash groups, backslash manageyourdamnmoney, backslash, 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 backslash. <laughs> um, of course, uh, very hearty thanks to our friends here at Montgomery Community Media for another amazing show. Uh, we're always so thankful for their hospitality. And until next time, be good with your money. Peace. Peace.